Hi, I'm Eric Olson, and welcome to a festive holiday edition of the Lineup Podcast. With me, as always, is Dr. Clarissa Cole, forensic psychologist. The holiday season is a special time to gather with family and friends, take some time out of our frenetic schedules, and reflect on our blessings. As the song says, it's the most wonderful time of the year. But for many people, the holidays are a time not of joy, but of acute sorrow. Why is that, Clarissa? Oh, the holidays are really, really tough for a lot of people. And I, and I think part of that is that a lot of people are not with people that they want to be with. You know, the, 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 the strength of those bonds may be tested over time or perhaps somebody has passed away. And so you hear all these Christmas songs about togetherness and family and you start to think of those loved ones that aren't around you anymore. And so for a lot of people, the holidays are a really trying time and we're reminded of it in our culture now, I think, more than we ever have been before. Do you think part of it is the expectation or the demand that we be happy actually adds to the stress? I think so, especially you cannot get away from it anymore. You know, the holiday ads in in every show you watch, every movie you go to see, even movies at the theater now, they're having ads before that. So if you wanted to escape some of that missing of a loved one, it's almost impossible to do. Right. And then, of course, not every not every family is exactly perfect. Some have built in issues within the families and there can be confrontations and the like. So, yeah, even under the best of circumstances, there can be emotional issues and not everyone lives under the best of circumstances. Back to our tale. In 1911, Charles Davis Lawson married Fanny Manring, and they went on to have seven healthy children together. They worked long and hard as tenant tobacco farmers for many, many years, hoping to eventually dig out from under the burden of sharecropping to strike out on their own. Even through the tumultuous early 20s and the death of one of their children to illness, the Lawson clan persevered. Finally, in 1927, the Lawsons were able to purchase their very own farm on Brook Cove Road near Germantown, North Carolina. And by 1929, the Lawson family had grown to include Charlie and Fanny and their children, Marie, 17, Arthur, 16, Carrie, 12, Maybell, 7, James, four, Raymond, two, and Mary Lou, four months. In fact, things were going so well for the Lawsons that year that Charlie took all of them into town to buy new clothing and have a family portrait taken together. This was actually a really uncommon occurrence for a working class family of that era, and it must have been very exciting for all of them. But the picture had barely been developed when tragedy struck. Can anything about family dynamics or anyone's mental state be gleaned from that fateful photograph? You know, I'm looking at it right now. If you go to the lineup, there, there you know, is a, a photograph there, the family photograph that they had. And it's kind of stoic. There's not a lot of smiling going on, which is somewhat to be expected just because of the photographic process back then of standing still for a long time. But when you look really closely at the photo, it looks as though Fanny, that's the, the family matriarch, she looks kind of haunted. She's holding their, you know, four-month-old, maybe a little bit younger at the time. And and then there's the family patriarch, Charlie, and he's standing next to Marie, their 16-year-old daughter. She's sandwiched in between her father and her brother, her elder brother. 
and looks looks are you know pictures worth a thousand words she looks miserable um she looks caught she looks maybe scared or tired and the children down front they look like everything is relatively okay there's even a little bit of smirking and smiling going on some cuteness with the the little ones but the back row of the elder uh, folks in that family miserable is the only word i can come up with to describe how they look so you know they had this photograph taken and on the afternoon of christmas day carrie and maybell were shot on their way to their aunt and uncle's house their bodies were then placed in the lawson's tobacco barn shortly afterward fanny who was on the family porch was also shot the lawson's eldest daughter marie heard the shot and screamed while james and raymond attempted to hide marie was murdered next followed by the two small boys Lastly, the baby, Mary Lou, was slain, and it is said that she was bludgeoned to death. But who could have committed these horrible crimes, and why? The eldest son, Arthur, 16, was summoned home from town, where he had been sent by his father on an errand. He was told by townspeople that something terrible had happened at home. He rushed back to the family farm to find his entire family slaughtered. They were all laid out with their arms crossed and rocks beneath their heads. The only missing family member was Father Charlie. Imagine the shock and horror of such a scene. What would Arthur have been going through, especially when he realized that only his father was missing from the carnage? And why might have Charlie sent Arthur away on that fateful day? You know, it's completely unknown what Arthur was thinking. He went in, so Arthur had been hunting that morning, you know, Christmas morning, it's a crisp day. He gets up early to go out hunting. And then he comes back to his dad and says, hey, you know, I ran out of ammunition. And Charlie said to Arthur, hey, why don't you go into town and get some, get some more and, and come on back. So Arthur is just in town getting some more ammunition for his rifle. And then a policeman comes up and says something terrible has happened. When Arthur then gets back, returns to the house, he finds almost his entire family slaughtered and laid out except for his father. So I'm not sure what was going through Arthur's head. You know, it's kind of a, a toss up for me because Arthur was 17. He must have been old enough to kind of surmise maybe what had been going on in the house. But then at the same time, 17 year old, I was 17. I was very caught up in my own stuff at 17. And that could have been possible for Arthur, too, that maybe he really didn't know there was something else going on. So Arthur may have thought, oh, my gosh, my father is gone and my whole family was slaughtered while my father wasn't there. But then there's a piece of me that thinks that Charlie may have sent Arthur away into town because Charlie knew what was going to happen. He knew what was coming and wanted to spare Arthur. So back at the scene of the crime, the townspeople, they'd heard the gunshots and they heard gunsh another gunshot from the nearby woods. It was this sound that signaled the elder Lawson taking his own life. So a police officer who'd been with Arthur ran down to discover Charlie's lifeless body along with footprints encircling a tree. It was supposed that Charlie had been pacing around the tree prior to pulling the trigger. He also had a number of letters to his parents on his person when he died. But why had Charlie Lawson killed nearly his entire family, except for Arthur, and then himself? Well, I, I always think that Arthur was spared because he was the eldest son and he would carry on the Lawson name. I'm not sure of that, but there were a couple theories. So several months before the tragedy, Charlie Lawson sustained a head injury. And some people theorized that it had altered his mental state and was somehow related to the massacre. 
but an autopsy and analysis of his brain at Johns Hopkins Hospital found no abnormalities. But I, I, I have a question about that, Eric. Um, yes. I cannot, help, I cannot help but think. So, okay, he went into the woods and he shot himself. Now, when you commit suicide with a firearm, the most common place to shoot oneself is... In the head. Right. So we don't know where Charlie Lawson placed this fatal shot, but unless he, you know, put the barrel to his chest, I'm thinking that there might not have been a lot ahead for Johns Hopkins to look at. That that seems a reasonable point. And yes, if he did shoot himself in the head, then my goodness, that brain would have been damaged. Right. So how do they know? If there was trauma, you know, beforehand. So this has always been a mystery to me, but Johns Hopkins, you know, they said no abnormalities. So I guess that hypothesis is kind of uh, off the table at this point. No Abby normal. <laughs> Not at all. All right. Another rumor circulated that Charlie had witnessed an organized crime incident, had been found out, and that he and his family had been murdered to silence them, though no particular evidence has ever come forth supporting this theory. It wasn't until Trudy Smith's White Christmas, Bloody Christmas was published in 1990 that a more feasible catalyst to the tragedy became public knowledge. The claim was that there was an incestuous relationship between Charlie and Marie, the Lawson's eldest daughter. And to top it all off, the rumor was that Marie was pregnant at the time of the murder. And the day before White Christmas, Bloody Christmas was scheduled to be published, the author received a phone call from Stella Lawson. That's a relative who had previously been interviewed for the book, but who had left out some very key information. Stella said that at the Lawson's funeral, she had overheard uh, Franny's sister-in-law and aunts discussing how she had confided in them that she'd been concerned about the relationship between Charlie and the eldest daughter, Marie. More support for this theory was revealed in Smith's additional book, The Meaning of Our Tears. A close friend of Marie Lawson's, Ella May, disclosed that just weeks before Christmas, Marie had told her that she was pregnant with her father's baby. It is unclear if the eldest brother and only survivor, Arthur, ever knew of the turmoil within the household. He lived until 1945 When he was tragically killed in a car accident, he was survived by his wife and four children. All right, so even if the incest rumor is true, and there seems to be enough smoke that perhaps there was fire, why would that lead Charlie to kill the entire family other than Arthur? You know, he is, I guess, in some ways, uh, a classic family annihilator. That's a, a term that I use in my profession. And it's somebody that seems so cold and unfeeling to the outside world, and I understand that. But it's really the insecurity of a family annihilator that stands out to me the most. So despite what he did, Charlie Lawson was afraid. In fact, I think he was terrified. In Charlie Lawson's mind, being a public pariah whose incest with his daughter was revealed was a fate worse than death, and not just for him, but for them too which qualifies him not just as a child molester, but as a narcissist as well. And narcissists typically don't have the ability to truly put themselves in someone else's shoes. They extrapolate their own feelings and put them onto others. So if they're wounded, you will be too. That's just how it goes in their fragile little worlds. 
But the final piece of the family annihilator puzzle, which kind of eludes me with this case, is the unyielding rigid belief system. Most family annihilators have this. They have an unyielding belief system that they stick to. So while it may never be known what it was, it's likely that Charlie Lawson had a very particular set of beliefs about how life should be led, how the family should look. Unfortunately, we may never know what exactly was going on in his mind. Do you think that photograph, that fateful photograph, first of all, is there any possibility that that was in essence a premeditated act and that he wanted to document of the family before they were destroyed? I absolutely think that, that, especially since he went to town and basically said money isn't an object, buy the nicest clothes you can, and then lined up this photograph, which you know we were saying before was pretty rare for people of that time period. I really think that Charlie Lawson wanted a photograph of his family looking perfect, seeming perfect, so that after they were all gone, this photograph would exist, potentially for Arthur, the, the one survivor, of what the family was supposed to be, what he envisioned that the family actually was, even though it wasn't. Do you think it was his intent to kill himself? It seemed like he delayed it, and there was the footmarks in the ground. It looked like he was pacing, and it was there was a, a fair amount of time between when he committed the murders and then killed himself. Do you think it was his intention all along, or was that, or, or was that something more like the gravity of what he had just done struck him, and he just couldn't take it? Since he wrote the letters to his parents, which we don't know what those letters included, but since he wrote letters to his parents, it is my thought anyway that he absolutely intended to take his life. But family annihilators are not the most courageous people in the world, obviously. So, you know, he took the, the lives of his family members. But then when it came down to pointing the gun at himself, he had that uh, cowardly sort of pause. And, and I've known other family annihilators. Uh, John List is a good example of a family annihilator who had every intention at first of taking his own life, but instead he ate a sandwich and then went on to live another life with a, a different family. Yeah, your analysis of, of List is, is uh, it's textbook as far as I'm concerned. Maybe could you do a real brief comparison between the two, the two family annihilators? Yeah, so, you know, this is what I wondered about Lawson too. So so List was a guy who, by for all intents and purposes, was fairly successful. You know, he had a good job and he kept progressing in that job uh, to where, you know, List was an accountant and then he moved on to be a head accountant of a bank, you know, a really large banking firm. And he bought this huge mansion. Lawson is not all that different. So Lawson started out as a lowly sharecropper, got married to the, the woman he loved and then worked and worked and worked until they had enough money to buy their very own farm. And by all accounts, they were pretty successful. So List and Lawson are looking real similar. At this point, they both have big families. The families are successful as far as they know. But in List's case, since he was so rigid, he didn't get along with other people very well. And when he was working at the bank, he didn't get along with the people that he needed to get along with. So he eventually lost his job. And the way List saw it, if he lost his job and his family had to vacate that beautiful mansion with the Tiffany stained glass window, that they would all be outcasts from the, the social circles that they were in. Now, my guess is that Lawson may have felt similarly. He was leading a double life anyway, if the rumor about Marie is to be believed. So he was living this double life where he had a great family. They all looked wonderful. They had this successful farm, but 
he was having an incestuous relationship with his daughter. And then when Marie suddenly disclosed that she was pregnant, all of that threatened to come crashing down. And with John List, it's that they were so much in debt that the collectors were coming. So John List knew that he had a limited amount of time before his family was going to find out the truth. And it would be broadcast to everyone, right? Because in John List, he would have lost his mansion with Lawson. He would have lost his reputation his entire life. And rather than suffer the shame of what their actions had wrought, they felt in their hearts that it was better to spare their family the humiliation. So in a sense, it's a social crime. It's not a crime of passion. It's not a crime of anger. It's not a crime of the moment. It isn't really, which is ironic for a narcissist, even about him. It's about how does the rest of the world view us. So it's a social crime. In some ways, it sounds to me like the killer is acting for society, at least in his twisted mind. Yeah, exactly. They they are projecting, they're, they're anticipating what society is going to say about them. And I would love to say that they're so narcissistic and messed up that they're wrong, but I don't think that they are. I think that John List would have been judged because of how he placed himself in that community. You know, they were involved in all these clubs, all of these social things. You know, the kids were involved in sports and theater. And, and with the Lawson family, it was kind of similar. They were engaged in church and in their, their you know, they had family nearby. They placed themselves in this social strata and they knew how those forces would judge them and they knew it would be harsh. And so they, they, in some ways, wished to spare their family from that. But how you know that a family annihilator is a coward is that, you know, deep down and that they're insecure is that John List, even though he had planned to kill himself, did not. He went on to change his name, find a new wife and lead a different life. And with Lawson, he traipsed around a tree for hours deciding whether or not he should. Wow. Were there any indications that you're aware of during his life prior to this that he was, that Charlie was a narcissist? Do we have any other indications other than this horrendous crime? You know, I didn't find anything, you know, short of, of possibly reading the book. I, I didn't see anything that indicated that he was a narcissist other than the thought that he was having an incestuous relationship with his daughter, which does speak to some very skewed form of narcissism in that uh, Marie was um, a, a possession to him and not a person. All right. I am just so freaked out by incest. I, I, I cannot comprehend it. What kind of personality traits contribute to incest? Who wants to do that and why? That is the question of the ages. It really is because it, crimes against children, unfortunately, are not rare. So we have a lot of information on pedophilia as a whole. But when it comes to incest, it is such a rare crime. I mean, that we find out about in psychological circles. Let me put it that way. A lot of incest is not discovered until long after the perpetrator is dead and gone. And the family then speaks up about it. So in that case, we can't study it. But since it is, the, you know, the, the base rate of it is so low, it's really hard to know exactly what is going on. And, and I don't know if Lawson was a pedophile in general or if he was a pedophile at all, since his daughter was potentially in the adolescent years when he started. We, we don't know that. Then he'd be a hebophile, which is a slightly different variation. So I'm not sure what was going on with him. And could a head injury have brought that on? 
it's possible. Interesting. I didn't make that connection. You know, as far as I know, incest is such a powerful taboo in virtually all human societies. Why would someone go so far as to break that beyond what you've already said? You know, it, that is the, the real question. I, I think that a lot of pedophiles in general, it almost seems to be somewhat of an orientation. There is this big myth out there that if someone is a pedophile, it is because they have been abused. So people might jump to that conclusion in Lawson's case, too, if he was, you know, had an incestuous relationship that maybe he was molested. But the statistics don't bear that out. Less than half of all pedophiles were actually abused themselves. So what made Charles do this with his daughter is really anybody's guess without talking to him. I wish I could say, but I don't know. Just off the top of my head, and I am not a professional, but it occurs to me when I try to kind of comprehend this and sort it out and follow the logic of incest, the thing that is the most abhorrent about the whole thing to me is here is this person who is literally half me. That That is me right there. Half of that person is me, and the other half is a person who, um, you know, at least at the time, uh, I, I loved and cared about uh, and, and was married to. So two people who I really care about, including myself, <laughs> have gone into the creation of this other human being. Every instinct I have, and obviously most people have, is to protect that person, to give them every advantage, to try to do whatever you can to have them be happy and adjusted and successful. Could it be that a portion of the narcissism or a demonstration of the narcissism is that this person, the father, in some way, twisted way, is literally entering into a relationship with himself. I am so glad you put it that way because that really eludes a lot of people. I I feel like they can't even get their thought processes to go there because it is so weird. And I don't blame them at all. But in the few incest cases that I've treated, and, and I should point out to the audience that I started my work as a forensic psychologist with sex offenders. So I'm pretty aware of what goes into both rape and pedophilia, but I did not have a lot of guys that um, my, my population is mostly male that were incestuous. But for those where it was, I mean, Eric, you just hit the nail on the head. You really did. Of There is this component of the narcissism where they, they are enamored with, they have a very, very twisted kind of love toward this individual that doesn't just reflect the other person in the relationship, but it reflects them, a piece of them. It is a, it is a very, very twisted form of love and, of course, abuse. Yeah, it's like the mir- mirror image of what most people feel. They want to protect. They want to nourish. They want to do all they can for that person to set them on their way, to set them up for life. But I see what you're saying, that for, for a certain kind of narcissist, they're more concerned about that portion of that person that's them, and they see themselves in that person. It's literally, <laughs> it's literally like narcissists staring into the water. 
It is. I, you know, it, see if this doesn't make the the hair on your arm stand up. This I just remembered this just now. The the one person that I had that I was treating in a group, and he was, uh, you know, an incestuous pedophile. And I could not figure out, even the group members, these are other sex offenders, could not figure out what made him offend against his daughter. And he said, I, I kid you not, nobody understands me like she does. Yeah, well, you know what? At various times in my life, especially when I'm feeling sorry for myself, I have said that about my mother. Mm-hmm. I have said that about my oldest daughter. And with her, it's mostly that she's been around for 32 years, and I've known her her whole life, and she's been close to me the, her, her whole life. And she has a certain view uh, of me. It's generally you know, more positive, of course, than the world at large. But that leads me to value them and their perspective and their happiness all the more, not to destroy that relationship – do these people, do the incestuous narcissists, do they not recognize that they are, in fact, destroying that relationship by engaging in this behavior? Oh, my goodness. If you could win a prize for, like, psychology guessing game, you would win right now. I, I literally wanted to go ding, ding, ding. But that is exactly right. They, they, oh, God. Like, and I have probed this with, you know, with different guys where I'm, you know, I'm challenging them and I'm thinking they know what they're doing. But when I really challenge those in these incestuous relationships, that is exactly right. They do not understand, truly, to the core of their being. I don't think they get that they are harming that person. They see it as a mutual love. They do not get that it is not consensual at its very root, and it could never be because they're usually children. That it's not consensual. And on top of that, it is going to skew that person's view of sexuality and relationships for the rest of their life. The way they see it, it is a love that society finds taboo, but that they themselves do not. Well, it's such a violation. All right, let's move along. The eight Lawsons who perished that day, including Charlie, are interred together with baby William. That was the the child who died. Um as an infant, beneath a single headstone, which bears the melancholy inscription, not now, but in the coming years, it will be in a better land, we'll read the meaning of our tears, and then sometime we'll understand. Oh boy. Poetic, but perhaps (laughs) wishful thinking. Yes, very wishful thinking. (laughs) And uh, so shortly, well, I don't know, maybe this ran in the family because... Shortly after the murders, Charlie's brother, Marion Lawson, opened the murder home on Brook Cove Road as a tourist attraction. Oh, my God. And the cake, actually, there were two of them. The cakes that uh, Marie Lawson had baked on Christmas Day were displayed on the tour. And because visitors began to pick at the raisins on the cake to take as souvenirs, it was placed in a covered glass cake saver for many years. Oh, my. I'm so proud of my murder raisin. Please. What do you do with it? What do you? I can't. Please come to my display case, (laughs) where I have my sports memorabilia. (laughs) I have my, I have my signed Henry Aaron baseball, and I have the Lawson family murder raisin. I can't. 
I can't. I can't even. Yeah. I don't even know. You know what? I think they should be in in therapeutic groups too, because I don't know who takes a raisin as a root, as a, like a keepsake. But I don't I know. Digress. Well, but look at how popular serial killers are. You know, there's literally serial killer trading cards. Oh God! Why did you bring that? There are. Oh, there are. Trading cards. Really? Yeah, like baseball cards, football cards, basketball cards. Whoa. Serial killer trading cards. I'm, okay, I was unaware of that. With all the statistics on the back, just like your favorite player. Oh, God. See, the, oh, there is nothing to be memorialized or idolized. I mean, even though, I mean, see, I feel, okay, I feel like the world's biggest hypocrite saying that. I do, because this is what I do for a living. But I don't idolize them. I'm, I'm studying them in the hopes of understanding the behavior so that we can recognize it more quickly in the future to, to head things off at the past. I, I would not. And believe me, I have had many chances, people, to collect, you know, memorabilia. I used to work, you know, at San Quentin on death row. I had chances. I, why would you want that in your house? I don't even understand. I don't know. I don't know. The, the, the reason you hear most often is they're, they're paying witness that someone has to keep track of these things. Someone has to pay attention to these things. And people have to be realistic about the depths of human depravity. But I'll tell you what, it still sounds like celebrating it to me. It does. And honestly, okay, if I could start like a social movement, which I know will not happen, but if I could – what I would do is to say, why not seek out the families of the victims and celebrate those people? Because those are the people that deserve recognition. And, and too often, way too often, the victims' names, identities, personas, and families disappear into this background of a patchwork of victims that nobody remembers. And I would much prefer that people celebrate their families and, and recognize their stories than subsisting on the, the horror that these people commit. I mean, I, I'm, I'm stunning them to understand them, but it's the victims who deserve remembering, in my opinion. Well, that is an excellent point. The Lineup Podcast is a joint production of The Lineup, America's Most Haunted, and The Criminal Code. Stop by the sites at www.the-line-up.com, americas-most-haunted.com, and thecriminalcode.com. Our theme music is composed and performed by Absofacto. Listen in at absofacto.com. Have a wondrous holiday season and a great new year.